This is episode 238 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support our show, contribute directly to programming, and get access to a library of bonus Shakespeare history content when you join us as a patron at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm James Seth, Assistant Professor of English at Central Washington University and author of Maritime Musicians and Performers on Early Modern English Voyages and Shakespeare's Sea Dogs. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. It's very up to the minute. And they're talking about this. Is this, does this work? Can we do this? Initially, there's a lot of skepticism and a lot of like, oh, we say, you know, you're just wrong. But then people start talking about it more as if it might actually be possible. It's as if Shakespeare has his finger on the pulse that way for what people are talking about. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Famously in Shakespeare's play Macbeth, the title character becomes convinced he cannot be killed because the witches tell him he can't be killed by a man, quote, of a woman born, end quote. It's only when it's too late that Macbeth learns his nemesis Macduff was from his mother's womb untimely ripped, as Shakespeare writes. Now, that's in reference to a cesarean surgery, and that's when Macbeth learns of his ultimate fate. Shakespeare's inclusion of a C-section in his play comes at a time when medical science and religious doctrine were questioning the viability of this procedure in a heated public debate. In 1581, French surgeon François Rousset published the Hysterotomodiki or Cesarean Birth, which argued women should have cesarean as a viable option for birth during difficult deliveries. His publication caused quite a stir in medical society, with surgeons across Europe speaking out publicly to condemn that very suggestion. The heated conversation traveled all the way to England, where a man contemporary to William Shakespeare named Simon Foreman would write about C-sections in his publication matrix and the pain thereof. True to form, it seems William Shakespeare's play Macbeth was full of poignant and extremely timely cultural references to a huge political debate that was happening right when the play was written. Here today to help us understand the history of cesarean sections during Shakespeare's lifetime and exactly how controversial it might have been to include C-sections in his play is our guest and professor of the history of medicine and author of Women, Health, and Healing in Early Modern Europe, Mary Fassell. Mary E. Fassell is a professor of the history of medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Her work focuses on how ordinary people in early modern England understood health, healing, and the natural world. Her introduction for the Bulletin of the History of Medicine explores women, health, and healing in early modern Europe. Her publication, Vernacular Bodies, explored how everyday ideas about making babies mediated large-scale social changes. You can explore more about Mary's work and see links to her other publications on the history of medicine from Shakespeare's lifetime and beyond in the show notes for today's episode. 
Hello, Mary. Welcome to the show. Hi, Cassidy. It's a pleasure to join you. Was cesarean section an established medical term for the 16th century? Yes, absolutely. It looks back, of course, to the well-known story from antiquity about the birth of Julius Caesar. Scipio Africanus was also supposed to have been born this way. And a bit more mythically, Asclepius, the god associated with medicine, was also supposedly born this way. So anybody with a classical education of any kind would certainly have heard of this. Were C-sections performed regularly during Shakespeare's lifetime? No, not really. Um, We have to distinguish here between two kinds of C-section. The kind that was performed sometimes in the Middle Ages was if the birth mother had already died. And there's instructions on like keeping the dead woman's mouth open because the idea was somehow breath would still infuse the unborn child. And there's very specific directions how to extract the child. Very often it was more to baptize the infant. They didn't necessarily expect it to live, but they did want to baptize it. Sometimes they thought it could live. So for example, the first midwifery book that's published in English is a translation from a 1513 German text by Eucarius Roslin. And in the English 1540 first edition, he very matter-of-factly describes how you lay the dead mother on her side and what you do to extract the infant. So that's one kind of C-section that we really don't know very much about whether it was performed or not. What happens that's different in the 16th century is from the 1580s, thanks to this publication by Rousset, we start seeing interest in the idea that this could result in a living mother and baby. And that's really new. But again, we don't think performed very often. If someone had a cesarean where the baby was removed from the body of the mother, was that still considered giving birth? Yes and no, as historians like to say. (laughs) Yes, that woman was a mother like any other mother, for sure. But there is this kind of weird thing from classical antiquity that I think is what's going on in Macbeth, that there's sometimes thought to be some special powers for a male infant born by C-section that somehow was not birthed by a woman, you might say. Um, Pliny, for example, he's a Roman natural historian, very widely read in the Renaissance. He held this belief that somehow if you weren't of a woman born and you were male, that gave you special powers. Like, for example, Julius Caesar, you know, well-known leader of men, It's hard to exactly pin down why they think this, you know, what is it? But there's some, it's almost as if that man is not subject to normal kind of female controls of some kind or was not in some way like obliged to his mother in the same way. I can't pin it down, but there is this belief that these are special people. Was the procedure for performing a cesarean in the 16th century, I mean, you mentioned that there were at least a couple of manuals that detailed directions, but I wonder, was this a doctor that was doing this or was it the midwives? And what kind of instruments were used to perform this surgery? The Almost everyone was born with the midwife in attendance. It was really uncommon to have a man in the birthing room. That only happened if things had gone really seriously wrong. And in that case, it was probably a surgeon rather than a physician who was called in. Surgeons did 
what we think of as like operative surgery today. They didn't open body cavities. Usually that was too dangerous, but they did wounds. They set fractures. They dealt with hernias, dislocations, all that kind of thing. And so they were really the workers of the hand in terms of medicine. And they would have been the ones equipped with scalpels. And that's the tool that they would have used. Were much more kind of inside the body in general, like fevers and that kind of ailment. They weren't as much doing the kind of manual work of healing as did surgeons. So it would have been a surgeon and they would have used something like a scalpel. What were the survival rates of the mother and the baby when they were performing this surgery? I mean, I think you mentioned that you know, the expectation was that the mother was dead in the Middle Ages and they were just getting the baby out long enough to baptize it. But when they started switching over in the 16th century to this idea that maybe we could save the mom and the baby, do we have any records of that being successful? I mean, obviously, Rousset had to have based his ideas on on something, but do we know what? Well, what's so fascinating about Rousset's text, which, by the way, Parts of that were translated into English in 1607 and possibly sooner. So he's using what became a very popular form in the Renaissance, which is the case history. So we have actual narratives about women's experiences, and some of them are tragic and terrible, but some of them seems to have succeeded. And so while we'll never have any idea of the rate, we just will never have those kind of numbers, we know that. Rousset was told stories about women who survived. So the other key tool here is obviously a suturing needle. Because once the uterus has been cut open and the baby removed, then for the woman to survive, obviously they have to very quickly sew her up and stop bleeding. So very complicated procedure. But according to Rousset, some women survived this and, you know, went on. And he even discusses the case that we still argue about today, which is if a woman had a C-section and had another pregnancy, would would she have to have another C-section or could she give birth vaginally? So they actually got to that point, which tells me that they were thinking about it. That sounds like a significant advancement in medicine for them to get to that point. I'm not sure how significant because it's so very rare and the risks are still really high. Remember, this is long before germ theory. They don't know anything about infection. The fact that a few women might have survived, I, I don't, it's amazing and it is an advance, but I think it's such a small part of what we might think of as, you know, birth medicine that I don't think of it as, as nearly as significant as, say, the development and invention of obstetrical forceps that's coming, that's, you know, in the next century. Well, besides Rousset's work, were there other ways English people might have heard about C-sections? That is a really interesting story because it turns out that it seems that in the 16th and into the 17th century, there were a lot of stories about Jane Seymour, the wife of Henry VIII, one of the wives of Henry VIII, that she had died from a C-section. So she died after giving birth to Edward VI sometime in October 1537. And very quickly after her death, ambassadors in England who were from countries on the continent started writing home, as it were, part of their job was intelligence gathering, started writing home this story that Henry had ordered a C-section. And the story goes both ways, either that he 
wanted to save her or that he wanted to save the baby. The more unsavory one is he basically sacrificed his queen in order to get an heir. You know, a male heir was a really desperate thing for him. And so first we have this sort of series of ambassador letters. And then this belief, some people say, is part of her epitaph in St. George's Chapel in Windsor, where recently the queen was buried, same place, that this her epitaph uses the figure of the phoenix rising from the ashes. And some have suggested that this alludes to her losing her life by a C-section giving birth to the air. And there's even a ballad late in the 16th century about this, more than one ballad, I believe, about this whole story. In the early 17th century, antiquaries like John Speed and William Camden talk about it. So I think we, first of all, we'll never know. I think it's kind of likely that that's what happened, but we'll never know. What interests me is that this was a story alive and well in Shakespeare's own day, that people were singing the ballad, they were telling the story. So it was a kind of resource for ordinary people who might never have been reading Rousset. They might not even know how to read, but they could hear the ballad sung. So the concept of this as a procedure that could happen, I think was much more current than we might imagine. So how controversial was it for Shakespeare to put C-section in Macbeth? I mean, were people still considering this a huge religious faux pas to even suggest that this might be something you should do? Or, or where was this at in the, you know, the cultural temperature there? That is a really interesting question that's very hard to fully answer because you could parse it in a number of ways in terms of the religious significance. Some people would see it as a kind of more Catholic emphasis on the the soul of the infant as sort of sacrificing the mother for the infant and that that would obviously have some pretty dangerous associations in Shakespeare's own day. Alternately, I suppose you could sort of point to, you know, Edward VI's all too short reign as, you know, continuing the Protestant Reformation. So I suppose you could spin it that way if you felt so inclined. I think the the Catholic reading would be more likely. I don't know if that was the first reading people would give to it or if this older association with Julius Caesar and this extremely rare instance where somehow a man would be would have extra powers might be the way people were more likely to read it. But I do think it's capable of multiple interpretations, and people could have brought a lot of different things to the mix when they heard this. I mean, not of woman born is such an evocative phrase, right? You sort of immediately stop and think like, well, but but how can that be? Surely everybody is born that way. Like, I don't understand. And then I think people would have had, some people at least would have had the cultural resources to draw upon to sort of make sense of that explanation and see Macduff as a peculiarly powerful character. So it's presented as a as a riddle on purpose, but one there was a reasonable expectation on Shakespeare's part that people would would have recognized. And maybe the controversy wasn't quite at the level of the abdication scene in in Richard the Third, but we we could say that it was definitely a little bit of shock value on Shakespeare's part. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think especially for the people that knew the Jane Seymour story, it had a kind of contemporary relevance. It wasn't just this kind of classical antiquity C-section, you know, invoking Caesar kind of narrative. It was this very much more immediate, you know, seems relatively well-known kind of story about how this could have happened, how there could be a man not of woman born. And again, I think it's really open the kinds of interpretations people could have brought to that. So I don't know that it is... I don't know. It's just controversial. It's very up to the minute. That's what I think is so interesting about this. I mean, Rousset is published in the 80s. And you know, doctors are arguing about this in the 90s into the new century and the kind of really skilled ancestors of today's obstetricians are mostly in France at this point or largely in France. Guillemot, for example, is the surgeon to the Hotel Dieu. And they're talking about this. Is this, does this work? Can we do this? Initially, there's a lot of skepticism and a lot of like, oh, Rousset, you know, you're just wrong. But then people start talking about it more as if it might actually be possible. And it's as if Shakespeare has his finger on the pulse that way for what people are talking about, which I think is really interesting. You might not expect a playwright to be up on that kind of sort of scientific controversy, if you will. Well, I know that we would be excited to explore some of these manuals and the doctors and the instruments and the the whole gambit of information there is to explore about C-sections in the 16th and 17th century. So what are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend for us as a starting place if we want to learn more? Well, there's a wonderful book on um, women's bodies, anatomy, etc. by Catherine Park. It's called The Secrets of Women. And it's a little bit of an earlier time period, but covers a lot of the themes and significant aspects and talks about C-section. It talks also about the sort of evil twin of the C-section, which is the moment in antiquity when Nero orders his mother's womb cut open so that he can see where he came from. So, you know, really terrible I think that's really rich. And at the risk of shameless self-promotion, I'd say my book, Vernacular Bodies, talks about the politics of reproduction in early modern England. So I don't talk about C-section in particular, but I talk a lot about the changing meanings that people brought to reproduction as England went from the period of the Reformation into the revolution in the next century. So both of those would be good places to start, I think. Those are excellent resources. We will link to these as well as some extras about Guillemot and Rousset in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go there to see all of these resources and definitely to check out Mary's book. It's a wonderful read and something you should look into for this topic. Definitely. Now, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Hey, hasn't everyone wanted to be on Desert Island Discs? I love it. I think so. so. Of course. Of course, I would immediately want to game the system and say, well, I'll have the complete works of Trollope then, because based on page length, it would keep me happy for a long time. He wrote a lot during his lifetime. That's a lot of novels. Alternately, on Desert Island, I think you're going to need some laughs. And so potentially, the artificial world of P.G. Woodhouse might be a good thing. And he also wrote a lot of books. If it's just one book, if you're really going to hold me to that, mm, I think it might have to be Middlemarch. I often find rereading that wonderful. It's full of detail. It's a great read. I think that might be my other choice. 
I think you would be well set up on your desert island with those selections. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? I'm writing a trade book on the very long history of abortion. It's called Long Before Roe, and it goes from antiquity to antibiotics, because I think we need that really long history now. We need to understand abortions are things that women have always done, they've always terminated, and that prohibition never works, never has, never will. And so I'm excited to tell a story that goes over really long periods of time to help us understand the situation we're in now. That sounds like a fascinating publication. We'll look forward to seeing that coming out. Mary Fassell, thank you so much for being here with us and sharing us the history of C-sections from Shakespeare's lifetime and just how up to the minute Shakespeare was with Macbeth. This was really a fun conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. If you liked the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. If you would like to see additional details, including woodcuts, portraits, and artifacts related to cesarean section from Shakespeare's lifetime, be sure to stop by the show notes for today's show. Inside the show notes is where you can see more visual content that coordinates with the history you're learning about today. And there's more information about our guest, along with the resources Mary Fissel recommends you use if you want to explore the history of C-sections further. Find all of these things at castacash.com slash episode 238. That's com slash ep. P238. That Shakespeare Life extends its historical focus to our funding model, being supported in part by listeners who sign up to be patrons of the show, which is the same way William Shakespeare funded his work during his lifetime. Patrons who support the show are treated to behind-the-scenes extras, including sneak peeks at upcoming guests, the chance to submit your own questions to be asked live on the air, as well as worksheets and maps and other digital resources that you can print and download, all of which coordinate with the show and with Shakespeare's plays. The patronage of our listeners allows that Shakespeare life to be available anywhere in the world, completely commercial free. Join us as a patron today and unlock all the great bonuses at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.